Welcome, everyone, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to continue our ongoing discussion about the outbreak of the novel coronavirus called COVID-2019. And to do that, Andrew Young joins us. Andrew covers changes in the workplace for MSCI ESG Research, and we are going to discuss how companies' work practices affect their ability to contain the virus and manage business disruptions. And then to give you a quick reprieve from that viral menace, Antonio Panagiotopoulos, who covers the oil and gas industry for us, joins me to give some spice on the other crisis hitting the markets, the ongoing oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, now on to COVID 2019 because it's really just beginning to take hold of our world. Uh, cities are starting to shut down, travel is being restricted in a really serious way, and people are trying to figure out how to both stay healthy and contain this virus, but also make money to keep the lights on and buy food and do everything you need to do to survive. It gets more complicated as the United States gets pulled further into this because we don't have universal health care or in many cases paid time off, which is creating pain for workers like McDonald's hourly employees who demanded on Tuesday, March 10th, that the company institute paid sick leave for those working at its U.S. restaurants and to actually train people on safety protocol as the coronavirus cases in the U.S. begin to rise, which allegedly they have not done. McDonald's responded to this by saying it would pay corporate-owned restaurant employees that are quarantined up to 14 days. But that doesn't cover the majority of McDonald's stores, which are owned by franchisees. And 14 days doesn't cover people if they're actually sick with the virus, which is out of your system in about six weeks, or if if the stores shut down, actually. So as our stack card today, I decided to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation of what it would cost McDonald's to provide sick leave for its workers that were infected with COVID-2019. And the answer is $8.3 billion USD. I got this by taking the average hours worked by a McDonald's employee, multiplying it by the average wage of $9 USD, and then multiplying that by the six weeks typical of the COVID infection period, and taking that sum and multiplying it by one-third of the 1.9 million global McDonald's employees, and that includes franchise employees, and I took one-third because... That is how many people got sick with the Spanish flu, and I wanted to take one of the worst-case scenarios. And so that's how I got $8.3 billion USD, which might sound like a lot to you. But McDonald's paid out $8.5 billion USD to investors in the form of share buybacks or dividends in 2019. And in three years, it paid out a total of $25 billion USD to its investors. So the company can afford this. And it's not just McDonald's that needs to figure this out. Walmart, Amazon, Uber, they all have contract workers on their staff. They all engage in the gig economy. Uh, Basically, any company with a precarious workforce might have to heed this pandemic and address their most important resource for the long term, their workers. But before we get even into that, I think, Andrew, I need you to define for everyone what we mean when we say a precarious workforce and you've been writing about it for a while, so I thought, who better than to define it than you? Um, a precarious worker, I think that could be anyone who um, does not have the job security of a full-time, uh, as, as a full-time employee. 
Um, so that could be someone who's on a temporary contract, part-time uh, uh, contract, uh, gig worker, like you mentioned. Um, uh, yes, uh, anyone on a fixed-term uh, contract. And just to set the stage here, what has the chaos of COVID highlighted as a long-term risk for employees and investors? Because eventually the actual virus will abate, but I assume there will be aftershocks to how some businesses like McDonald's conduct their operations. What I think this um, virus does is it brings to light these companies that don't offer um, uh, healthcare benefits to, to their workers. And so if McDonald's is not providing this benefit, then uh, at least they can expect attrition of their workers to companies that might offer uh, better healthcare packages. Um, and uh, if you have a higher attrition rate, you're going to have higher recruiting costs and higher training costs. Um, and also, um, maybe there'll be some cultural implications, which could lead to lower productivity. I totally agree. And I, we're going to have to see what happens when the virus abates. Uh, for companies because there could be conversations where people are discussing how the company treated them. Because what you just said was that, you know, they could they could have a problem with people coming into work or people wanting to work for them. I think this could be a, a watershed moment for a lot of employees that have not seen a situation like this happen in their lifetime. I have not seen a situation happen like this in my lifetime, and it's already changing how I view um, healthcare and the benefits I have and the ability to go to a doctor and the fact that MSCI is letting us work from home as we want to. I mean, this is what we talk about when we're concerned with long-term risk. Everything seems stable when it doesn't, and you need to look for the companies that are prepared for that instability. For example, if I want to take another low-wage uh, company, uh, Starbucks, they in 2018 implemented this program where they gave $250 million to 150,000 employees, and they gave them stock, and they said, we are building this uh, trust for you to use to go on paid sick leave. And it, it helped with retention and it helped with employee morale and it helped with actually keeping people available and around and healthy to run their businesses. And now Starbucks is going through this situation where they are, have to actually put this policy into place because of COVID. So, uh, you know, I think this announcement by Starbucks, they've, they've done the calculation. They thought, how can we retain more employees What's it going to cost us to retain those employees? And implementing a program that you just mentioned might be one way. Um, and then you can uh, then you can uh, make the calculation yourself. You know, are you are you willing to make the saving on not paying healthcare, um, or are you going to make the investment uh, now in uh, in healthcare benefits and reap the benefits in the longer term? Okay, but I assume there's industry separation here. Is, is Starbucks an outlier, or are there other low wage industries? trying to implement better work from home policies or money available for employees to get paid sick leave yeah it's it's more it's more the higher paid uh, work work uh, industries that are uh, taking steps in the right direction let's say you know uh, for example microsoft said that the the number one benefit that they can identify that enables them to retain more employees is uh, flexible work arrangements so allowing workers the ability to come in late if they have to drop their kids off at school or leaving early to pick up their kids uh, and picking up those hours elsewhere. Is there a region bias in this conversation? Obviously, when I started off, I said this is a, a new situation in the U.S., but do investors have to look at their portfolios and say, where am I tilted toward North America and how am I more exposed to these pandemics because of 
or even massive flu seasons because there's a lack of sick leave available in that region. Uh, if, you know, using statistics from the OECD, it is quite clearly a U.S.-centric issue, this, um, the issue of no paid time off. I think it's the only country in the OECD that doesn't offer um, the paid uh, time off uh, uh, at the federal, at the state level. Um, and uh, so in the U.S., or let's say, let's start at the OECD, um, at the average, uh, if you work a minimum wage job in an OECD country, on average, you would have to work, let's say, 30, 35 hours a month to get above the poverty line. In the U.S., you have to work 80 hours at the minimum statutory minimum wage, $7.25, in order to move above the poverty line. Um, so I think this is a, a really um, uh, demonstrates how this could be um, a really big issue for uh, U.S. Uh, companies, uh, for U.S. workers, um, and a shock uh, like this where they uh, cannot work um, will push a lot of people below the poverty line. Not only that, but like BlackRock and State Street have rightly noted that it's a new day in the world where the worth of a company is really now and it's, it's set in its intangible assets. It, it's in the people and company culture and internal employee dynamics, and it's no longer as much in the products it produces. And so companies need to issue more disclosure around it, and, and COVID just highlights that. It is through this one-off event that we are able to be more aware of the importance of labor in our economy, which will be reflected in how regulators demand companies actually disclose on their human capital going forward, which the SEC has actually done recently, right? That's absolutely right. So in 2019, the SEC updated their guidance um, for companies um, around uh, human capital management. Um, so that's, uh, that's been a, a long-standing uh, guidance. Um, it hasn't been updated for 30 years. And uh, maybe uh, on the back of some of this pressure from investors wanting to understand how companies deal with these issues, whether it's low-wage uh, low workers or high-skilled workers, um, I think these are all very important issues uh, that investors should be aware of. And, and an issue like COVID-19 will maybe bring that uh, more to the fore. Well, it also raises questions like what percentage of the U.S. workforce is a precarious workforce? What percentage lacks paid sick leave? lack sufficient healthcare coverage, and from an investment perspective, what percentage of companies' revenues are more or less dependent on those precarious workers? Because at the moment, it's very hard to answer these questions because companies don't properly disclose on their use of contract workers. There's this high-profile example that came out recently where Google uses a lot of contract workers, only they don't call them contract workers they call them TCVs, and this is all according to leaked documents reported on by The Guardian. And if you go to Google's earning calls and their 10Ks, you'll have a hard time finding any mention of them at all, which kind of feels like COVID 2019, where in some areas, there isn't enough information given for anyone to really know what to expect and what exactly is going on. And now with some spice, we have Antonios Panagiotopoulos, our oil guru, because if COVID 2019 wasn't enough, there is this other market shattering event that happened this week, the oil price wars. Here's what went down. I'll set the stage for you. Last week, delegates from oil producing companies like Russia and Saudi Arabia met to discuss 
who should slash oil output to offset the collapse in demand caused by COVID? Because basically people are not traveling. And even if they wanted to travel, there are widespread travel bans and companies are shutting down. Everyone is just using less oil. So at the conference, everyone agreed it should be the U.S. that should slash supply, and then they ended the meetings. However, Russia decided it didn't want to go along with the proceedings, and it even expressed a bit of ambivalence about cutting supply. The Saudis responded by saying, well, actually, now we want steeper and longer production cuts. So Russia tried to call their bluff, and then Saudis slashed its crude oil price and even promised to ramp up production. That act cause a further collapse of the oil market, which yes, has happened before, but never at the same time as a pandemic that was already slowing demand for oil. And what makes this an ESG story, aside from the fact that fossil fuel usage is always at the top of our minds, is that it feels like what could happen in the future if one day renewables actually can carry the weight of our world's energy system and we see a global collapse in oil demand that is actually sustained and not created by a cataclysm. Do you agree with that assessment, Antonios? There, there is a likelihood. Um, I don't want to be the harbinger of bad news, but uh, uh, demand for fossil fuels has been known to be quite elastic to price. So therefore, if prices do drop, there is a, uh, a big likelihood that... Uh, and if coronavirus uh, kind of recedes, there is a likelihood that people would be um, uh, incentivized to burn more, which will only lead us to burn the remaining budget that we have kind of sooner. And therefore, that would lead us to uh, getting to the point of no return actually faster. Uh, again, I, I think that over the, the medium and long term, people will, um, uh, I think that prices will return to some normality and then the same um, uh, if you like narrative about climate change and fossil fuels will return to the forefront. Well even if the conversation continues it seems like it does give some ammunition to investors saying we need to seriously consider what would happen to our economy if there was a sustained decline in oil demand right doesn't doesn't that actually hold fruit? So uh, a lot of it will determine will be determined on on demand and that's the only reason why we're saying that the current situation and demand, albeit uh, or although it came from completely the wrong reasons, it might actually give a picture of how the world is going to be in 10 or 15 years or by some scenarios even sooner. Yeah, I agree. It seems like I think what's so interesting about COVID and the cut to our economy and the cut to the airlines is that emissions are actually decreasing in the way we would need to see them if we want to keep a semblance of the Paris Agreement, which is, a, I think, an ESG topic that we're going to have to be discussing for months, years after this, because it seems like at our current economic system, it's not possible to sustain the necessary cuts that we need to actually make. This would most likely resemble a forced scenario where you've actually <laughs> have already hit your budget and then uh, government regulation uh, actually imposes uh, certain rules and criteria in order to drop emissions. It's not the scenario, the ideal scenario, where this is based on consumer choice and this is based on company's choice, and therefore you see a, a, a bit of a smoother transition uh, over time. This is actually resembles what a shock would be like 
And in the case of, uh, if we're thinking it uh, uh, along the climate change kind of discussion, it would be as if uh, the regulator as or the, the country would impose a very strict rule uh, that would essentially lead to an immediate drop in emissions. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank my guests, Antonios Panagiotopoulos and Andrew Young. Uh, I want to, to thank you for listening. I hope you're staying safe out there and washing your hands and taking as many precautions as you can during these precarious times. Um, if you like what you heard, please don't forget to rate and review us. I am always trying to do better. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks as always. Talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.